If this is your first time to worship with us, I need to kind of get you a little catch-up here, a little update. We're studying the life of a man who lived 3,000 years ago whose name was Solomon, and he was king. It's good to be king. Solomon was king not only, you know, and had great power on the throne, but he was king at a good time. His dad was David, King David of David and Goliath fame, and Solomon was one of David's youngest sons. And it would not have been normal for the youngest son to become king, but David's older sons were not chosen by God to be king, just like David's older brothers were not chosen ahead of him. Solomon was chosen. God wanted Solomon to be king, and David had him anointed king when Solomon was a very young man. But Solomon didn't know how to be king. You know, when you grow up the youngest in the family and nobody perhaps expects great things from you and you're thrust into a position of power and influence, you have to learn on the job. And that's where Solomon was. He he, he prayed one time to God and said, God, I I don't even know how to go into a room and how to come out of a room. Maybe some of you, if you feel like me, you know, maybe you've been invited to one of these, you know, really fancy banquets or whatever, the ones that have ten forks. I never know what all those forks are for. You know, when do you use which fork and all that? I, you know, a lot of you may, may be all over that kind of stuff. But Solomon was saying to God, I don't know which fork to use. I don't know how to be king. And one night in a dream, God visits Solomon. And Solomon uh, is asked what he wants. And he could have answered a whole lot of things. He could have said he wanted to be rich. He could have asked for the death of his enemies. He could have asked for long life. But instead, Solomon said, God, I'd like to, I'd like to be wise. I'd like to, the Hebrew is, I'd like to have a hearing mind. Solomon knew he was going to have to hear a lot of things. When you're a leader, and that's all of us are leaders at some point, you hear a lot of stuff. You get a lot of advice. You get a lot of stories. And Solomon said, I want to know how to tell the difference between whether I'm hearing junk or if I'm hearing something good. And he said, I want to, I want to be wise. And God said, all right, please God. God said, because you haven't asked for all this other stuff, I'm going to give you everything else too on top of wisdom. And Solomon reigned during what we would call the golden age of Israel. Everything went great. There was lots of money. There was lots of growth and development. There were no wars. It was just a wonderful time to be alive. But Solomon, after living all these good years, this charmed existence, he woke up one day and he said what we, what we talked about on Easter Sunday, the first installment of our arcade series. Solomon said, still haven't found what I'm looking for. He had all this stuff, but he said, I, I don't know what the meaning of life is. So he set out to search to find what life was about. And he tried all kinds of things. We, we, call, we say he's in the arcade of life. In the second message, I talked to you about how he tried, you know, money. He got $320 million a year on top of all the other stuff that he got. And, he, you know, he had a lot of sex partners. He had 700 women that he married and had 300 more that were just there for him whenever he wanted them. And, and that didn't make him happy. He decided he'd get involved in building, you know, houses and palaces and building projects. And he brought in comedians and entertainers. He just, I, I was thinking about Psalm this week before I preached this message. I think he was sort of obsessive compulsive. He had OCD before we knew what it was. I mean, he can't just try something a little bit. He's got to try, he's got to try it to the, to the extreme. So here he is, he's in the arcade of life, and he's trying all the machines to try to find out, you know, what will make him happy. And he's gone from, from singing, still haven't, found what I'm, what, still haven't found what I'm looking for, to I can't get no satisfaction. And that's where he is. But there's something is starting to trouble him, because he looks around, and he's not the only player in the arcade. There in Jerusalem, everybody's in the arcade. Everybody's playing. And he's watching that after a while, people are slapping the machine because the lights are are going off and the words game over is there. He sees people dying. 
And Solomon's saying, you know what, I, I'm, I'm in the arcade, I'm trying to figure out what life is about, and nothing seems to be working, and beyond that, you know, the machines are going down for, uh, for people, and, and the game is over, and he starts to become concerned about death and what comes after death. So for a few moments, if you'd allow me, I'd like to take you through a little bit of a journey through Ecclesiastes to see what Solomon is saying about death. It's important for us to see this, because here's the thing, Solomon is trying to figure out life from observing. He's trying to, to look at life, and the, and the wise men, the wise women, the sages of that time believed that if you observed enough life and analyzed it properly and wrote down your findings, then you could, you could indeed say, I found the meaning of life, and you could write your books and tell everybody else, here's the meaning of life, a lot like the self-help industry that we have today. And that's what they tried to do. They tried to figure out life, and Solomon's right there with them. He's trying to figure it out. He's a, he's a smart guy. He's a wise guy. He's leaving a book. Ecclesiastes is a journal. It's like I've been telling you. You know, when you read Ecclesiastes, you know, you want to be careful about basing your life on what Solomon's saying. God's just giving him permission to write down his random feelings in this journal. And he's going to start talking about, about life and death. And, and I just want to see if these things resonate with you. In Ecclesiastes 8, verse 8, he said, None of us can hold back our spirit from departing. He's talking about the moment of death. And he sees our spirit is leaving our bodies, saying we can't pull it back in. <laughs> None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. There is no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. That's a euphemism for death. So in chapter 7, verse 2, he said, it's better to spend your time at funerals than at festivals, for you're going to die, and you should think about it while there's still time. A wise person, he writes, thinks much about death, while a fool thinks only about having a good time now. So you see Solomon, he's just bouncing around all over the place. One moment he's saying, man, have fun, enjoy the good life, you know, eat, drink, have lots of sex partners. He's saying, whoop, that's not where it is. Maybe I better start thinking about death because there are a lot of people in the arcade and they got the game over sign. So he says, better to go to funerals. So what Solomon does is he TiVos all the, all, all, all the, uh, the episodes of Six Feet Under and he's just watching them, you know. And he said, I know what I'm going to do now. I'm just going to funerals. So I guess for a while, like I said, this guy's obsessive compulsive. I mean, he just goes to everybody's funeral. I mean, here's, you know, Joe Brown who who's, uh, you know, works at the hardware store. He dies, and, you know, people look around, and, wow, there's the king. <laughs> and the plumber dies, and there's the king. And the doctor dies, and there's the king. And the, house, the homemaker dies, and there's the king. I mean, Solomon's just showing up at everybody's funeral because he's saying to himself, Man, I can't figure out what life is over at the palace. I guess I'm going to have to go to the funeral home and figure it out there from going to all these funerals. But all this time spent at funerals is getting him down because, again, remember, he's just looking at life, trying to analyze it, and what he can see doesn't look good. Because after going to all these funerals, it kind of looks the same after a while. And if you go to a lot of funerals, some of you, you never go to funerals, but if you, if you, if you do go to a lot of funerals, you have to admit after a while, there are some elements of, of funerals that look pretty similar. You know, there's a casket and flowers and music and, and a minister, and you go out to the cemetery, and there's a grave, and, you, and they leave the casket there at the grave, and you know, you, there's the procession, the hearse, and after a while, if you go to enough funerals, it all looks the same. And indeed, I'm not saying they are all the same. I'm saying there are elements of it that look the same. And Solomon is just hanging back and watching all these funerals, and he's saying, you know what? It looks to me like it's all the same, whether a person's a good person or a bad person. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 14, he said, I saw that the wise and foolish people share the same fate. Both of them die. 
He's saying good people, bad people, they all die. Ecclesiastes 5.16, this too is a very serious problem. As people come into this world, so they depart. All their hard work is for nothing. They have been working for the wind, and everything will be swept away. You remember the song? The group Kansas said, all we are is dust in the wind. That's what Solomon's saying. They've been working for the wind. Everything will be swept away. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. (laughs) Solomon is saying, what's the point of trying to be smart and wise and prudent and store up money and be good and nice to people if when you come to the end of your life, everybody ends the same way? Now, you have to understand Solomon was like a lot of us, and many of us grew up you know, in church, in a belief system, and our parents took us to church. Solomon had grown up in a very religious family, and they didn't have the whole Bible like you and I have, and so they didn't have the complete revelation of God's Word. They only had a part of the Old Testament. But Solomon had been taught when he was in what we would call church, he had been taught that the spirit of man goes up at death, and animals are different from man. Their spirit does not go up, and that's what he'd been taught all his life. So in, in chapter 3, verse 19, he said, humans and animals both breathe the same air, both die. So people have no real advantage over the animals. How meaningless. Both go to the same place, the dust from which they came uh, is to, and to which they must return. For who can prove, look at this, for who can prove that the human spirit goes upward and that the spirit of animals goes downward into the earth? Because Solomon is first of all saying, I don't see a difference between a good person and a bad person. Now he's saying, I don't see a difference between human beings and animals. Perhaps the lowest point that he gets is in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 2. He said the same destiny destiny ultimately awaits everyone, whether they are righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean, religious or irreligious. Good people receive the same treatment as sinners, and people who take oaths are treated like people who don't. It seems so tragic that one fate comes to all. That's why people are not more careful to be good. Instead, they choose their own mad course, for they have no hope. There is nothing ahead but death anyway. There is hope only for the living. For as they say, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. The living at least know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, it's all gone. Now, a lot of you, in reading the book of Ecclesiastes, you may not know a whole lot about Ecclesiastes, but there's probably one, one part of it that you've heard a lot, and it's in chapter 3. It's when Solomon has this poem, and, and I hear it at weddings and funerals, and you know, Solomon said to everything, there is a time, there is a season, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a time to plant, there's a time to reap, there's a time to throw stones, there's a time to gather stones, there's a time for peace, a time for war. And people like to put that poem out there as, well, this is beautiful, glowing poetry. What you should understand is that when Solomon wrote that poem, he wasn't real happy. He was saying there's this cycle that just goes on and nothing ever comes of it. You know, it's a time to be born and a time to die. People come and people go and people live and they die and after a while they're all forgotten and it doesn't make any difference and all we are is dust in the wind. Philip Yancey writing in his, in, in his great book, Where, in, Where is God When He Hurts? He talks about a funeral custom that's conducted by African Muslims. Close friends and family circle around the casket. There's no singing, there's no flowers, there's no tears. But peppermint candy is passed out. And the family and the friends let the peppermint candy dissolve in their mouths because in their lives, the way they look at it, they're thinking, life just dissolves into nothingness. And there are many people who feel that way. That's what Solomon was thinking. 
Life doesn't go anywhere. We live our lives, we struggle, we, we go through frustrations and disappointment, and at the end, what happens to us? They, they stretch us out, they put us in a box, they have a funeral, they take us out to the cemetery, they bury us and go back to the church and eat potato salad. Solomon is saying, that's what it looks like to me. But his struggle, now here's the thing, here's where I want us to turn. His struggle is, he's trying to go by what he can see. The expression under the sun means that which I can see in life. And under the sun, observations in life were leading Solomon to believe that this life was all there is. But Solomon had been taught a little something. Hey, could I ask you a question? I mean, this, nobody here but us and the television cameras. <laughs> could I ask you a question? Do you struggle sometimes between what you've been taught is true on a spiritual level and what you can see. Do you struggle with that sometimes? Do you struggle to live your life saying, man, I know what God is teaching me, but man, what I can see doesn't look good. Do you ever have that struggle? I think all of us do. That's why Peter, you know, he took Jesus at his word and stepped out of the boat, but when he began to see the waves, he started sinking. I really think when it gets right down to it, all of us deal with that a little bit. And Solomon, you know, he said, when I go about what I can see, it all looks bad. I don't see anything but caskets and graves and flowers, and it doesn't matter if a person's good or bad. It looks like they go into the ground and nobody ever hears from them again, and the dead don't know anything, and how do I know that a person's any better off than an animal, and who knows if anything happens when we die? Solomon has a brief moment when he reflects back on what he'd been taught, and listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 11. He said, God has made everything beautiful for its own time, he has planted eternity in the human heart. I want to go over that one more time. God has planted eternity in the human heart. You can, you can look at human beings all over the world in all cultures, and there's one universality. All human beings know, seem to know intuitively that they're going to live forever. That's why the Egyptians, as flawed as their thinking was, that's why the Egyptians built the pyramids. God has placed eternity in the human hearts. There's one thing I know about you. You may not have it well-defined. You may never have flushed out your thoughts about what's going to happen when you die, but one thing I know about you is in your heart, you know you're going to live forever. God has placed that seed in your heart. You may be here today and you say, I'm an atheist. I believe that when you die, you go down to the ground and nobody ever hears from you again. Could I respectfully say, you don't really believe that? You may articulate that, you may whistle through the graveyard, but in the final analysis, in your spirit, you know you're going to live forever. Why? Because God has planted eternity in the human heart. God has just put it there. Like I say, you may not have it real well defined, you may not be sure what you believe about it, but in your spirit, you know it. I mean, I think that's why people just sort of shoot from the hip when someone dies and they imagine that they're in a better place, because in the human spirit, God has planted eternity. Now, like I said throughout this whole series, we're not going to let Solomon give us the answers. We're just going to let him ask the questions because Solomon's all messed up, and, and he's struggling with life. But the Bible gives us answers to Solomon's questions. So, so for the next few moments, I just want to give you some life points about considering life and eternity and what happens the moment you die. Here's the first life point. This is one question you'll never get an answer to by observation. 
When it comes to what happens the moment you die, you will never get the answer by observation. You say, well, Mark, we're going we're to do a study. We're going to put it under the test tube, or we're going to put it under the, micro, in the, in the, in the, under the microscope, or we're going to come up with some kind of study to find out what happens when you die. You can't do it. Because there is a curtain in this life that veils off what is to come. And the thing about it is, there's no way that you can, by observation, figure out what's going to happen after this life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, the Bible says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So that's it. You cannot figure out what happens when you die by observation. Because only the things which are unseen are truly eternal. Those things that you can see are going to pass away. If you look around this room this morning, everything you can see with your human eyes is not going into eternity. You say, well, Mark, I see people. We see our bodies. But our bodies are not going to go into eternity. The real person, the real spirit, the person on the inside is going to live forever. Now look at this. Here's what the Bible says in Job chapter 19, verse 25. Job was going through really tough times. He was, he was sick. He had lost all 10 of his children. Everything he had owned had, had been taken away from him. Job said in 19, verse 25, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. He said, I am overwhelmed with the thought. Now, I want you to think about what Job is saying. Job is saying, when this body decays, I know that I will see God with my own eyes. Now, think for a moment. What that means is after this life is over and after these bodies decay in the ground, God is going to give us a new body. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, the Bible says, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, When we die and leave these bodies, we will have a home in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. This body that you and I live in is not going to last forever. The Bible calls it a tent. And one day this body is going to to die, and it's going to go back to the dust from which it came. But the real you is going to go right on living. You are more than your body, your spirit. I mean, it'd be like if you went to your doctor today and say, hey, doctor, I need a personality transplant. Your doctor would laugh because the real you is invisible. He can work on your body or she can work on your body, but that doctor can't work on the real person on the inside. And the Bible says that when we die and leave these bodies, we're going to go into eternity where God is going to give us a body that will never pass away. David said this in Psalm 49, verse 14, Like sheep, they are led to the grave where death will be their shepherd. But as for me, God will redeem my life. He will snatch me from the power of death. So here's how it works. When you come to the place of death, the real you, the real spirit, that living person on the inside of you is moving into eternity. God has placed eternity into the human heart. And you and I are going to live somewhere There will never be a moment, listen to me, there will never be a moment in your existence where you will fade to black and no longer exist as a person. The real you that is conscious, alert, and awake and aware is going to go on living in eternity somewhere. But ladies and gentlemen, as I preach this message today, I want to say something and make sure that all of us understand this. We live in a culture today in which when anybody dies, the idea is that person has gone to a better place or everybody goes to heaven. 
I need to let you know something. The Bible says in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. What the Bible is telling us here is that every one of us is going to live on forever someplace. We're either going to live forever in the presence of God in a place the Bible calls heaven, or we're going to live forever in a place that the Bible calls hell. And the moment I say that, somebody could say, well, Mark, I don't, I don't like to hear preachers talk like that. I mean, I, I, I want to hear preachers say that everybody goes to heaven. Well, for a moment, what if I were to say that? What if you came to church today and, and I said, everybody who dies goes to heaven? Would that make it true? Would that make it so? You could say, well, Mark, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. I'm going to listen to a preacher that's inclusive and tolerant and says that everybody goes to heaven. Is he or she going to make it so? See, when you and I die, we're not going to face public opinion when we die, we're not going on Larry King. When we die, we're going to face God. And Solomon's saying, looks to me like everybody's going down to the dirt and it's all over. And the Bible is saying, no, it's not like that at all. You have a never-dying person inside your body, and that person's going to go on living somewhere. I mean, Daniel said it this way, the prophet, he said, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. There's one thing that is universal. It is everlasting. If you go to heaven, it's everlasting. If you don't go to heaven and you go to hell, it too is everlasting. And the reason why I preach it so important today is, you know, if you and I, if we make a bad decision in this, in this life and we mess something up, like I'll be 50 this year, if I, if I mess something up in my life, maybe I'll mess up the next 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, but it can't be much longer than that because my physical life is going to come to an end. But if I make a bad choice for eternity and I lock that in, then I've really done something awful, the worst thing I can possibly do. So what I want to say to all of us here today on this wonderful day is, yes, you are going to live forever, but where are you going to live forever? Have you ever thought about it? Have, have you ever made preparation? It's amazing to me that people in America spend more time planning a family vacation than they spend planning, thinking about where they're going to spend eternity. So what do we need to know? Somebody will say, well, Mark, I want to go to heaven. Well, what do I need to know about it? Are you, are you telling me that I've got to join your church and, and that I've got to be? No, I'm not telling you anything like that because joining my church won't get you into heaven. Being baptized won't get you into heaven. Being a nice person won't get you into heaven because you have to be perfect to get there. Whoa, I'm in trouble. You say, well, well, Mark, I mean, maybe you want me to, you know, to sell everything I have and go to Africa and, and, and be a missionary and, and then God would take me to heaven. No, that won't even get you to heaven. The Bible says you can give your body to be burned, but that won't get you anywhere. How do you get to heaven? And what do you have to do? What's so bad that would send a person to hell? Because I think a lot of us here, there's, well, I can't go to hell. I'm not a bad person. I mean, you know, maybe the guys that flew the planes into the towers, maybe they're going to hell. Maybe Osama bin Laden, maybe he's going to hell, but not me. How, how bad do you have to be to go to hell? What, what bad thing do you have to do to go to hell? Well, that's why I'm saying if you go by what you can see and you go by what you can observe, you never will get the answer. You'll be foggy on it all the time because you have to listen to what God says. And what God says is rather peculiar. God said everybody 
is sort of born on the wrong road. We're all born on the road to hell. Adam sinned. You and I have sinned too. We've messed things up. We're just on that road. And that's why Jesus came into the world in John 3, and he said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He said, the world is already condemned. Jesus said, I've come to give you life. That's the whole purpose of Jesus. I mean, that's why when you drive up out here, the, the symbol that you see is the symbol of a cross because everything we are and every, every hope that we have is because of what Jesus did on the cross. I mean, there's no church that can get you into heaven. There's no good life that can get you into heaven. There's no sacrament that can get you into heaven. I can't. No preacher, no priest, only Jesus. And that's why he came 2,000 years ago. God came in the flesh, and he lay on a cross after living a perfect life, that perfect life that you and I can never live. And he willingly gave his life. He willingly gave it. He said, nobody takes my life. I mean, the one who spoke the world into existence has no problem with the group of men that want to nail him to a cross. He said, nobody takes my life. I give it. And he lay on that cross, and he hung suspended between heaven and earth for six hours. And the way God looked at it, and that's important, the way God looked at it, when he gave his spirit back to the Father, all sin had been paid for, every sin in the whole world. So here we are. We're all on the wrong road. Jesus comes. And somebody said, wait a minute. Oh, that's great, Mark. Now we're all on the right road. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What, what happened when Jesus died, we've been given a gift. But what do you have to do with a gift? You know, I, I remember hearing a friend of mine who was offered a gift by an abortionist, and she said, I don't want to receive your gift. She turned him down. It is possible to turn down a gift. This gift is coming from God, the God of the universe. He gave his son to die. And, and somebody will say, well, Mark, are you trying to tell me that Christianity is the best among all religions? I'm trying to tell you Christianity is not a religion at all. I'm trying to tell you God loved the world and he gave his only son. And the Bible tells us this. If you're willing to receive the gift of eternal life, you can go to heaven. It is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. You cannot earn your way into heaven. You have to receive the gift. We talked about Bill Gates last week. He's the richest guy in the world. Suppose Bill Gates wrote you a check for a million dollars, said, here, you can pay off all your bills. And you said, well, I won't pay off all my bills, but I'll pay off as many as I can, all right? Bill Gates writes you a check for a million dollars. Is it good? Yeah. So you say, well, I got Bill Gates' check. Oh, this is awesome. Man, look what I have. You can show your friends. Call everybody and say, hey, come over and look at my check. Bill Gates wrote me a check. Mm, there it is. There's his signature. This is so great. I think I'm going to frame it and put it on my wall. Is that what you should do with it? Not if you want to get anywhere. Man, if you want that check to do you some good, you need to go to the bank, sign your name on the back of it, present it, and say, here, I'm cashing this. And that's how it is with what God did for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus paid for your eternal life, but you've got to receive that gift. You have to accept him as your Savior and Lord. You have to admit, God, I'm, I'm on the wrong track. I, I'm not getting anywhere. My life is not going anywhere. I'm going the wrong direction. But I want to turn around now because Jesus died for me, and I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And at the moment that you do that, he comes into your life. And the Bible says, not me. We haven't figured this out from observation. 
This isn't under the sun stuff. The Bible says that Jesus Christ comes into your life. And when the time comes, when this old body wears out and it drops down and people are going to think you died, you haven't died, the real you is going to go right into the presence of God. 